Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to Tone Talk with Mark Kuzanski and Dave Friedman. It's uh, episode 107, and we've got Rich Rankin from James Tyler Guitars. What's up? How you doing, Rich? Great. Awesome. <laughs> Great to have you, man. Uh, Dave, how are you? I'm perfectly fine. Cool. Cool. I want to welcome everybody to the show watching. Um, make sure you check out Sweetwater.com. All right. They sponsor the show. They give us um, a little kickback, a little commission on anything that you buy there. And it helps the show. It helps us keep the podcast going, helps motivate, you know, each one of us to get up and do the show. (laughs) So, no, I'm just kidding. We really appreciate it. Um, And Sweetwater's got a lot of great stuff and they have some exclusives right now. So check out all that's going on there. It's Guitar Month, I think, for September. So and uh, with that said, James Tyler Guitars, Rich Rankin. What's going on, man? Hey. You're in your studio? Yeah, nice to meet you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Rich, Rich and I go quite a ways back. Yeah. Yeah. How far yeah. back would that be? Well, so, so uh, you know, my story with Tyler starts in, in 87, you know, about the same time that you were getting into uh so i probably would have met you at some point in time when i was working at andy browers exactly because you knew uh, bobby hartree well yeah yeah we started doing work and stuff together and um but even probably in passing delivering oh, yeah. some instrument or something or doing something at tyler yeah exactly no we yeah. we Ooh, uh happened for sure met back then because i was i was there from 87 to 94 and right. uh you know and uh but uh, but yeah, we met then, and and then uh, just for folks watching, just me and Dave, I, w- I was in a, a few different bands with this guy Bobby Hartree, and uh, one of them was called Almost Ugly, and Dave really liked coming down to those shows. So and we played at the Coconut Teaser all the time, which was great because you could offload your gear and then hang out instead of like putting your gear on the street at the whiskey, and then you're once you get it in your car, you're like, I'm going home. <laughs> Yeah, the cool thing there was a there was a patio where where the yeah. stage was next to the patio, and exactly. so they'd offload the gear into the patio. But there were chairs outside in the patio, so exactly. you could sit by your gear and hang out outside and have a beer so, or whatever. That's cool. You see, I like that idea. And then and then you could offload out of the patio, you know. Yeah, you had to go. Yep. Yeah, oh, you know, yeah, that's the club's long, long, long gone. Many, many a different place has gone in that same location since. It <laughs> makes me a little sad every time I drive by. I uh, I ate at one of the restaurants that had been in there at one point, one high end restaurant. Was it, it was weird? I'm like walking around going, hmm. <laughs> was was the basic layout the same? No, yeah. no, they pretty much gutted the inside yeah. completely, so it looked like a different place. Yeah. yeah. Because you remember, yeah. it was like an old house, and I used to the play patio. Out. Though the patio was still out there, but they had decked it. Yeah, put a whole deck down the side and out there, and there was an outdoor bar. Oh, okay. Um, I don't remember which restaurant this was at the time, or how many years ago now. Yeah, <laughs> sometime in the last fifteen years, I went there. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a special place. I played upstairs a bunch, and and then there was a little one downstairs that I played in with the band. Oh Star. yeah bunch of times so that was a blast yeah back when i used to play you know now i just want to watch movies and lay in bed and watch tv <laughs> shows with the wife <laughs> well you know nothing wrong with that nothing wrong with that either <laughs> yeah. or, or, or or be a recording engineer like you are yeah 
No, I, I, I love, uh, I love that. I, I've, 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 it's funny. I came so, so, uh, talking about my story, the, how I ended up in Los Angeles is I was in a, in a Christian band back in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. You want to pull that picture up of like me in a red, red and black outfit. Sure. Let me get it. Cause the guitar player playing the Les Paul was, is Brian Carlstrom. And I think, did you ever meet Carlstrom and Dave Jordan, Dave? I, 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 uh, I don't think I've ever actually met either of them, but yeah. I didn't um, know, but yeah, of course I know who they were. And yeah, I remember Which, delivering stuff to Dave Jordan's place. Yeah. El Dorado and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ah, sorry. I'm, I'm going to try to, uh, I'm going to show this, share my screen and see if this works. So, so, so I can't, so Brian and I, so, you know, like all bands, we were like, yeah, let's go to California. And, uh, and that band was, yeah, that, that band was, uh, we, we loved like Toto, you know, and I came out here to go to Dick Grove School of Music. Uh, the keyboard player on the right uh, went there and he checked out MI and, and Dick Grove. And I didn't know anything about Lukather going there or Michael Landau. I mean, I knew who those guys were just from sessions and, you know, all the all the records that we loved in the 80s. Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's me right there. Okay. We're playing at uh, we're playing at uh, Rapid City High School, and kids were yelling, "Sid Vicious lives!" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my the drummer, uh, he's a doctor now, and in Minneapolis, but he was in the All Ameri uh, uh, McDonald's All American uh, band that plays, you know, two big parades, and uh, out of you know, hundred kids, out of all the kids that play in bands, he was a good drummer. If he would have came out here with us. He would have been doing sessions because he could read, you know, read music, you know, and played as we called it trap back then. But uh, but Carlstrom came out here and he went to uh, Los Angeles Recording Workshop. Now it's L.A. Recording School that's owned by the film school. And uh, he got his first gig at uh, Track Record when it was on Melrose. And that's when I started getting into engineering. I mean, I, I, I ran sound for my mom's high school band. And uh, and I always loved like when I would ride in my mom's 67 Chevelle in the early 70s, I would pull myself up. I would I, I just remember always holding the dash to get my face as close to the speaker as possible. I, I watched <laughs> your I watched your uh, Rick Hollis thing, Dave. And when you mm -hmm. talk about those early like, I don't know what got me into it. I just remember I was fascinated by stuff other kids were not fascinated by. <laughs> so and i would uh like when van halen came out I, I didn't know anything about engineering really i was messing around with it but i knew how to tweak knobs but i would pull the speakers around my head and mm -hmm. just go what is going on why does this sound like massive you know yeah so simple yeah oh <laughs> over here that's it and then i try it and it doesn't work we had the we had the we had the pleasure well that's the reverbs in stereo actually yeah uh the um we had the pleasure of um we were at pete thorne and i were at sunset sound doing some ir captures for our upcoming mm. upcoming two notes packs nice for two notes well, yeah. uh captor x's and um or any two notes product um and uh and so we're like can you pull up the chamber <laughs> Yeah. The echo chamber, you know, we're in studio one and, and the, the engineer guy, you know, patches it in, pulls it up. 
And he just and Pete had a guitar amp going just to make sure that you know till we listened to every speaker in every cabinet first, figure out which speaker we were going to actually use. And um, pulls up that echo, and you're just like, "Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Can we see it? Can we see it?" I'll be right back and put it down there. I haven't heard it yet, so I'm I'm going right now. <laughs> yeah, and, and can we see the echo chamber? And and so it's literally, literally, they take a panel off the wall in the control room. Behind these panels is a door, an old like, <clears throat> you know, one of those like '30s like freezer door kind of things, you know. Mm -hmm. And you open it up, and there it is. As soon as you walk in, you say anything. It's just like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like two two. Uh, to um, RCA ribbon mics, yeah, up really high in the room like this, you know, at the end, and just pointing at a old um, looks like Altec kind of yeah sound of the theater kind of full range uh, PA thing. Holy crap! That was the part that blew me away was that it was right there in the studio. I thought it was going to be like some separate room. It's not that big either, to be honest, but it sounds yeah, it sounds crazy. massive. When you no, walk in, exactly, yeah, and and literally, if I was in that studio, I'd be like, oh, let's put on the vocal, let's put it <laughs> right, put it on everything. <laughs> It'd be on everything, real mix, yeah, right. everything. That's hysterical. But uh, it was uh, that was awesome. I mean, it was awesome to see. It was fun to do. I love that you're working with Guillaume and Company because uh, I love those guys. I, they they flew me to France after KRK moved to Nashville, uh, and I got five yeah. kids here. They uh, me and Guillaume were talking about doing stuff together, and he's like, "Dude, we gotta, we gotta at least fly you over here. We got, we, well, what's funny is he, so he wanted to see. We were, we were figuring out if I would be a fit for his company. So he sent yeah. me a bunch of products, and uh, he sent me the Captor Eight, and he sent me the the uh, uh, what's the white box that the doesn't little uh, pedal M something or yeah, the cab so M. That. Cab M. It has the cab cab M. Yeah. yeah. And I go down to Hartree's and we, we plug in, we're doing all kinds of stuff. And, and we love the load box, you know, and it's deluxe and it sounded amazing. I go, are you sure it's louder than that, Bob? Cause it was still good loud, but it wasn't killing me. And he said, dude, switch it. And I switched and I was like, oh, wow. It kept the tone. And then we plugged in cab M and we were messing with that. And that was cool. And I'm sitting there looking at Bob and we're, they should put cab M in this captor X and like make that a thing. <laughs> So I got on the, oh, there you go. Yeah. I got on the, a, a zoom meeting with Guillaume and I, I said, you know, dude, this would be a huge opportunity. I think for you is to take that and put it in that. And he, he literally pretend this is the cab X. He goes, like, yeah, he that, that like, like cooking shows. It was like, <laughs> we've already done it. Yes. So we knew, we knew we were kindred spirit and he said, dude, you, you get this stuff. So I want to fly you over here and, uh, you know, let's do some videos and, and for the launch of this thing. So, so I had a blast. I had never been to France before. So, and he fed, fed me this food called Aligo. I'm a very picky eater. Ask Jim Tyler. I will never, ever eat sushi again because we went our still our Japanese distributor is, is, uh, is Kitahara. And mm -hmm. Dai came over to, he worked for a different company and he came over and wanted to get our business. And Jim goes, Hey, should we take him out to steak or should we go to sushi? And I go, well, if we flew to Japan, we wouldn't want them to take us to a steak place. You know, we're in Japan. Let's go to a sushi. 
So he said, okay, well, we'll take him to a good steak place. Okay, great. Which is good for me because I'm a picky eater. And uh, so they come in the door and they had the same idea. They didn't want to take us to a steak place because they're trying to wine and dine us. So they take us to their favorite sushi place. And I'm freaking out. And Jim's like, just sit next to me. You'll be fine. I'll get you the cooked stuff. Great. We get there. Jim sits down. Daisuke sits down. He goes, no, you sit over here by me. <laughs> and <laughs> me stuff, and I just, we wanted him as a distributor. So I had to play it cool. And I'm just, and, and of course, he's not letting me nibble and drink, you know, so I can force my weight. No, no, I'll sing in your mouth. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> and uh, the next day I go into work and Jim's like, I knew it. I knew you were going to dig sushi, man. And I go, it was everything I could do to just not heave. And uh, so I, that's when I stopped being polite about food. So now I'm in France and Guillaume's like, hey, my 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 girl and I want you to come over and meet my girl and, and my kid and and she wants to cook for you. And I'm like, oh, that's always even the most dangerous because <laughs> then you're going to insult you them. If you, right. You know, so he goes, what I go, I'm pretty picky. And he goes, what do you like? And I go, meat, potatoes and gravy. I'm from Minneapolis originally. And uh, he said, OK, I, I know just the thing. And I'm like, still like, uh, OK. And I get over there and Aligo is mashed potatoes and ch- this special so- cheese that's only in the south of France. He was explaining mm-hmm. the whole roar. And it's, it's slow cooked and it's like taffy. And then you cook these sausages and you cut the sausage and you put the aligo on and it's basically oh, potatoes and gravy. That sounds great. great. Yeah. I was gonna <laughs> say. And yeah. I've been looking for, a, you think in Los Angeles, there'd be a place where it'd be like, we specialize in aligo, but I haven't Can't found it yet. Huh. So Rich, let's go to sushi. <laughs> <laughs> no. You, you know, I, uh, I'll, feed, I'll feed you the the the, 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 the chicken teriyaki. Okay, <laughs> actually, you nailed it. That's what I get when I get. Yeah. I do or go for something. Or, that's that's yeah, what my son does. I yeah. love chicken teriyaki. I do love that. That and rice. Right. When I was in Korea doing the James Tyler Variax, uh, I was there for a long time, and they would always want to go to Korean barbecue. So I would cook my own little piece of meat, and yeah. I would ask for rice in the first place. And my buddy leans over and he goes, dude, asking for rice at a Korean barbecue is like going to, you know, uh, Muzo and Frank and asking if they have any Wonder Bread. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. I'm not eating the rest of that. So can I have uh, ketchup on my steak? Yeah. Um, uh, Andrew Paul, we got a super chat from Andrew Paul. Um, and it's for me. Mark, great recommendation last show on the Jeff Archer. It's awesome. Rich Dave. Do you need to install reverse taper pots when modding a lefty guitar? Thanks, guys. Oh, Rich? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I uh, you know, when I... world, yes. Yeah. We, we get lefty pots when we build a left-handed guitar because we don't really, you know, mod anything. Jim, Jim got into... I'm wearing Norman's, you know, T-shirt. Uh, Jim's first gig uh, outside of working on his friends' uh, guitars uh, was working for Norman back, way back in the day. And and he was a repair guy. And that led to him having his own shop. And just all, just kind of like your story, Dave, all these different guys, just your word gets out that you're the guy that, you know, can help him get tone or get this or that, you know. And that's when he met Mike and Lukather and, Tim Pierce and Kevin Dukes. And, you know, we got a, a list of the first bunch of Tylers, but so Jim was a, was a repair guy. And that's what he kind of went to the point where, 
you know, in the late eighties, everything was, he, he took, you know, like a strat at the time that wasn't worth much. Like even an early 60s strat, like Huff's main guitar mm-hmm. was, it wasn't that it, they weren't sought after yet. So he would take them all apart, take the frets out, put the flat radius in for the Floyd, put in Seymour Duncan's and the switches and all this stuff. And he knew Seymour way back, you know, they, they came up together. And so Jim would always be asking him, Hey, can you do this? Can you do that? And a lot of the stuff um, that that's still a staple at Seymour is stuff that him and Seymour worked on, you know, and I'm, and you know, you know how it is. Like, I'm sure Jim was asking him and other guys were asking Seymour, Hey, this and that, and it, you know, it developed into these products. So he realized, look, I'm gutting these things. I'm taking all the, if I just start with a body and a neck, I'm building a guitar. So he started getting like uh, stuff from Kabiki. I forget where else. And then ultimately it was Tom Anderson, you know, who's a dear friend. And I mean, I can't say enough about that guy. I just, I love him to death. Like he, uh, you know, Jim looks back now at what Tom did for him and, and, and just the patience that, you know, Tom, because Tom was, he was at Schechter when it was, you know, American made and when it got bought or something. And, and by the way, I, I got to say something. Uh, these are just my recollections. Jim could get right on here and go, dude, you know, what, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so these are just my recollections. Don't write it down or, you know, make it gospel. It's just, just me riffing with Dave here and Mark mm-hmm. and having fun, you know, talking. Actually, it's fun. We're, we're kind of catching up because me and yeah. Dave haven't talked since COVID hit, you know, Really, uh, the last time I saw you was maybe a Nam show somewhere. Yeah, I think it was Nam twenty twenty. You know, so uh, way, your your brother's here. Oh, oh my God! Get <laughs> out! <laughs> Brotherly love. So, a buddy of mine, and not to sidetrack, but you'll—I loved a tangent. A buddy of mine took that picture that you used, Mark, uh, when I was back home in in April, and it's a good picture. And uh, John goes. Yeah, nice picture, but I'm still better looking. And it's like, dude, you've always been better looking. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's brothers for you, right there. Yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, but anyway, so um, so he was a repair guy. So so uh, when I work first worked for him in '87, I, I helped do a lot of repairs and and stuff. But now we're just building. So when we build a left-handed guitar, I order left-handed pots. So that would, I guess, that was a long. Where do you order them from? Who you who oh, get the pots? Right now, I mean, Dave probably knows this. Like, just getting stuff. You're, you're right. It used to be, you know, there's a bunch of great vendors, WD and all parts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we get some stuff direct, you know, from various, you know, suppliers and stuff. But, but everybody's great. But you would kind of hone in on one, just so that you just here's your order form. And but right mm-hmm. now it's like scramble. It's like right now it's like, hmm. I guess we'll use those today. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what, like, what? What? Oh, we can't get that part. What else can we use to keep stuff flowing out the door? You know? I can get ten of those from Norway and pay too much. You know, it's like that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. Happens all the time. <laughs> Boy, does it happen all the time. See Hester with the super chat. Uh, thanks for the for the super chat. I th- think this is your question. What exactly is Mammy Woe? <laughs> Mamaiwu. Mamaiwu. Okay. Used to be a secret, but but now it's not. And the funny thing is, now it's expensive and hard to get. 
And the reason my mystery wood, as as it used to be referred to, mystery wood. Yeah, exactly, Dave. Um, It was Malaysian mystery wood. What it is actually is jellytong, J E L T O N G, jellytong, and it's from Malaysia. And it it it's back in the in the seventies. Jellytong was used by all different industries um, to carve because the the way the grain is, it doesn't have like ash. If you try and shape ash. Get, you, you have to be really careful because there's these hard spots and these soft spots. So you, you, you'll you put it, you know, an immediate dip where yeah. you want dips. Huh. Tongue was used by like car car manufacturers, air airlines to to carve out stuff and shape it and go, oh, yeah, that's what it looked. Because you, you could paint it real easy and look at it and see what you had before you started trying to, you know, fabricate it. And it was very abundant and very cheap. And some guitar builders would use it for the same thing to kind of map out what they were going to do with the shape of a body or something. Well, Jim kind of like balsa wood. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And Jim <laughs> built up a guitar with one and he just really liked the characteristics of the mid range. He just really liked what it, it, there was an openness to it, but yet like a, like a low mid push or whatever. And uh, so uh, so he started using it. Well, he didn't want to get made fun of. Like, dude, why are you using soap wood on your guitars? You know, so <laughs> like, like I make fun of guitar manufacturers, you know, who use basswood. I call it asswood. <laughs> I d- I personally don't like how it sounds, but people do. You know, so same thing. So he wanted to hide the fact that it was jelly tongue, and he called it mamaiwu, Malaysian mystery wood. But now the funny thing is, is I've tried this last year to to find find it you know, in quantities, you know, I could buy the only way to really do it is I would have to buy a container, bring it over, sort through it, find the stuff we could use and hope to find somebody to buy the rest. And that's just, you know, Jim loves Alder, you know, it's I, didn't, I don't think it sounded that good yeah. <laughs> to, to go to that trouble. <laughs> I'm an Alder guy. Mm. Jim loves it too. It was, and a lot of the stuff, the jelly tongue mid boost and series parallel and all that stuff. It sounded Jim's kind of got away from that for a while because it was more about racks, you know, speaking of yeah, racks, sure. you know, with all the compressors and all that kind of stuff, you, you, you know, you could What's do the, the sound series. of the times. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so, the, so it was split parallel for each pickup. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And the funny thing is, is now, you know, it's that whole thing. What's old is new again, you know, so now everybody's like wants the studio elites again, you know, with all the bells and whistles and because they're they're buying all these racks and stuff. You know, it's it's young guys were into Landau and all those cats and back in the day. And now they have the money to get the stuff they wanted. It's not midlife crisis. We just have the money to get the stuff we wanted when we were kids, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Christopher DeRose. says. Damn proud of you, Rico. I love that guy. He, him and I worked together at Fernandez Guitars. And uh, so I worked from Jim from 87 to 94. And then I left and I was a setup guy at Fernandez. And I ended up becoming the controller as the money guy, accounts payable and receivable and all that stuff. And I Chris, forgot was, about that. Yeah. Chris was my setup guy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my shipping guy. And today, when I, I'm the one right now packing up all the guitars going out the door. Uh, it's actually kind of nice to be away from the phone and be away from the computer and just 
put on an audible book and just kind of space out and pack guitars. You know, I, sh I really shouldn't be the guy packing guitars, but right now I am. And uh, as I'm wrapping them, I, I do the tape like uh, Chris showed me how, which we, we learned from a, from a FedEx guy that, that knew, and it's just a way to keep the box secure, you know? So every, every, every time I'm packing guitars, I'm thinking of this guy. So <laughs> that's great. Um, we got another super chat from Alex C. Dave, love your gear and the support. The XLR outs on my JJ Jr. and Run 20 is so superior to the old GT speaker emulator I was using. Do you ever see adding that to a larger wattage amp? Um, maybe not the exact same thing, but uh, there'll be other stuff in the future that may be even better than that. Mm. Mm. Cryptic. Yeah, cryptic. <laughs> I say in the future because God knows with parts. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, Craig it'd be, it'd be more like, well, you see a single knob amp in the near future. Maybe because that's all I could build. <laughs> <laughs> single channel, one knob. That's it. Um, yeah. Craig Sheehan, can you describe Brad's guitar from Night Ranger? You know, what's funny is I know that question's coming because I was at Fernandez and he has an old Strat that's his his main red and black Strat. Mm -hmm. Fernandez did basically a, a version of it um, to sell, and that was pre when I was there. But I um, I became friends with Brad later, you know. So I was up to his place, and when I saw that guitar, when when I was in college, I I for an entire summer I had hey kids, there were these things called cassettes, and you had to have a pencil to yeah <laughs> tighten up the tape um i had a walkman that would flip you know automatically and for an entire summer N midnight madness and and dawn patrol were just back and forth back and forth for an entire summer so to see that guitar in real life i was like oh <laughs> there's some badass guitar playing on that stuff oh yeah. my god just i mean just ass kicking guitar playing mm-hmm I'm happy uh, they had big hits with like Sister Christian so they could pay their bills. Mm -hmm. But like the song Night Ranger, oh, it was just uh, the solo on Don't Tell Me You Love Me. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. No. I remember when, so when I was a kid, I remember we, uh, me and my buddy Marty, uh, who I grew up with, you know, used to record uh, all sorts of, uh, he, he, he would record videotape all sorts of, um, Remember those VHS yeah. <laughs> <laughs> videotape, all sorts of uh, stuff that was coming on the cable box, the early cable box. Uh, and um, I remember we had, there was a service that was early on, at least in Michigan. I don't know if it was worldwide. I have no idea. There, it was an early cable service called on TV and um and they had that there was like some music channel or something where they had all these great concerts and there was a whole uh night ranger concert that he had recorded where it was all live and it was just that era right early 80s yeah that era just ass kicking and then there was a billy squire concert that he had mm -hmm. and all this other shit crazy stuff and um he still has all those videotapes i think he's digitized a bunch of them now um, but he has a huge collection of that stuff, and I'm like, was was on music. Was that a Canadian show that was shot? I, in? I don't even know. I feel like I, I don't remember what the I barely 
What was some, it some details TV? of my life are missing. Yeah. <laughs> do you know, you know? Chris Pooley, by the way? Dave, huh? Do you know a guy named Chris Pooley from Detroit? No. Keyboard player? Oh, okay. He, he Bobby Hartree. I'll talk about him a lot. He's like one of my best buds and, and my, probably my main musical con, uh, collaborator in bands. And we did a bunch of records together. And, you know, I couple it. One time I was unemployed after Fernandez. They at one point they couldn't afford me anymore, and I started engineering and thought I was just going to be engineering. And I'll get into how I ended up at Line Six. But um, Chris was a guy that uh, Bobby would hire a lot. We'd hire him a lot to do records. And the drummer was a guy named Aaron Sterling that now a lot of people have heard of because he he's like one of the main session guys and he plays with John Mayer. But Pooley is now. Katy Perry's musical director and he does he's the musical director on American Idol uh -huh. uh, and he married he was in Smashing Pumpkins where he met his wife and and uh he's just the sweetest guy and he's from Detroit and him and a guy named oh my gosh Ben killer writer when I when I came through Detroit with uh Volto uh Dave knows who Volto is for those yeah. of you that don't know Volto it's uh, a buddy of mine John Ziegler who's just a just one of our favorite guys here in Los Angeles uh, who had a stroke a few years ago and is, is still working on recovering. Hmm. Um, he, I ran sound for them for like 14 years and the drummer was uh, Danny Carey from tool and uh, Kurt Covington was the original keyboard player. And then we had Matt Rohde, who's just an incredible cat. And then John and Lance Morrison on bass. But uh, we went, we did a little short tour. They released an album that Joe Barisi did. And we did a little, sh we went out and opened for Yes at a thing called the Yestival. And since we were way out there, we ended up winding our way back. And gosh, what was the club in Detroit? It was the, 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 the lounge. No, the, it was bigger. It was uh, the, the booth was way like I had to go all the way up and then climb a ladder. <laughs> and it was like up in the corner of this huge hall. And I thought this is going to be ridiculous, but I got my mix and then I ran downstairs and was I went it like a theater or was it? A yeah. It was like an old beat up theater. And it was like, kind of like, kind of like the Wiltern is where there's like three decks. I, I should, anyway, Ben met me at that show and, uh, and helped me, uh, you know, unload the, the hmm. stuff, set up the stage and stuff. But so I, I had well, one day in Detroit. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been Hope much more fun day. now. Yeah, since they've uh, cleaned it up and gentrified it more, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Captain Sexy ninety. Thanks for the super chat. I have a black classic and a Studio Elite HD. I love, love, love Tyler guitars. Please talk about Coma and Puffy. Love from the Captain. <laughs> so, to to um, again, this will just be my recollections, guys. You know, it's uh, you know, it's me and Jim, we sit around all the time. And actually since he's, you know, getting up there in years and wanting to retire eventually, um, you know, I'll bust out what we call the green book that has like the original, you want to bring up that picture? It's a bunch of names. Yeah, sure. So um, he's bringing up a picture. That's like the, the, it was the, the we called it the green book. It was just a, a, a binder and yeah, that that's it. I'm going to put on my glasses. Um, that that was the first ten, Todd Sharp, eleven studio elites in the first ten bases. Um, yeah, so Jim got the first one that went ended up in Japan. But yeah, Todd Sharp, a guy named Rick Azum, killer guitar player, 
<laughs> everybody can probably guess Robin Ford. And, yeah. and then Jim had another one. And then Kevin Dukes. Kevin Dukes. Yeah. I, I knew Kevin. That cat. And then he built one for Bob. And then that's Puffy right there, number eight. And I forget what the first Landau guitar would have been. I don't remember. That might have been the Midnight with the Maple Neck. Um, and and I, if me and Jim well, said, what there, there, there was a whole bunch of things though that were 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 modified things too that he yeah. had. Oh yeah, no, this is this is the Studio Elite. So Coma mm -hmm. was. I thought it was something else, but do you do you Coma, remember? Coma was a red strat that was yeah. then then stripped of its color at some point in yeah. time. Yeah, he, so he then came it was like a pinkish off. color by when it was yeah. done. Well, he wanted the paint off, and Jim wasn't interested in doing it, and and or didn't have time or whatever. So Jim actually gave Mike a can of, a, a you know a thing of acetone, and he mm -hmm. stripped it all down. And uh, and then it just kind of the red soaked into the thing, but he kind of liked it. And then people started drawing on it and signing. And then he got a Tyler neck on it at some point, yep. I think. Yeah, yeah, Jim. Well, Jim. So Jim did that thing we were talking about. He put a Floyd on it, all those series parallel with the Duncans and the whole mm -hmm. thing. And it was that way for a long time. And then you know people stopped liking Floyd. So the first, I think, one of the first things was it switched to a, a Wilkinson bridge. And that's when I think it got the Tyler neck because. You know the the old they, neck had the Tyler sticker on the headstock, but yeah, it was a strap sure. neck. Yeah, yeah, and you can find that on the internet. Everybody's yeah. seen that. It, hook, it hung in the shop. In fact, the famous, not famous, but the the picture I always see of the headstock online is one that uh, a guy named Daryl Smith, who hired me at Line Six, uh, took when we were doing the James Tyler Variacs. We went over to the shop and we took a bunch of pictures of just fun old stuff. So Coma went through a bunch of iterations, and now he's still playing it. I, I ran sound for uh, Mike uh, and Steve Gad and those guys. I've been I've been helping out at the Baked Potato. If you guys don't know what the Baked Potato is, uh, go go Google it and and get on their their mailing list. They're they're going to go live with a bunch of on demand stuff. That's going to be all these great shows, and you can actually still go watch that um, Steve Gad show. It's basically the James T Taylor band. Mm -hmm. So he was playing Coma. And he and he, he's like, oh, Rich, come here, look at this. And in in the cavity, I forget what it says. I had I have a picture of it, but it's like something delish. Like Jim wrote this little note to to Mike in there, and that's oh, stuff. I've seen it. Yeah, so, I don't remember what it was, but man. yeah, it was it was some those guys, all those early those '80s guys, all had their own like they named their bands like Dog Cheese, and and it was all this like insider hilarity that they all got but i was always nope. like oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. and then and then puffy was puffy was just a studio elite and um that was the crazy paint job one wasn't it where it kind yeah, of burst it's the bur bur three tri burst or something yeah. right I, I remember that guitar you know what's funny is i even asked jim i said how did you first come up with doing a jim burst he's like i don't remember <laughs> you know so mm -hmm. But yeah, it's the blue to magenta to uh, red, and uh, but it had um, Jim's pickups, which were uh, we would get uh, bobbin material, and we would build, yeah, we would build yeah. the pickup up, and then Tom would wind them up for us, and then we'd get them back and do the, finish it off because we just didn't have the winding machines, and because uh, because uh, yeah, because then we could wind them. Jim could wind them the way he wanted them, and it had canceling coils for each of the single coils, so you could do the series parallel. Because you know, Dave, like in the '80s, 
because of, probably because of all the compression and all that stuff, any kind of buzz or noise, it was like, no, now we kind of like, oh, that's kind of romantic, you know, but <laughs> depending on, you know, yeah. but back then it was just like you walk into a studio and the engineer would just look at you like, why the hell is your gear making any kind of noise whatsoever? And you're thinking, because there's a lot of electricity and parts and things and <laughs> antennas. What, what do you mean? Which is why Lukather used EMGs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but that, you know, that slowly went away. So it had those pickups and a mid boost and it had a Floyd and, and then the puffy Luke talks about it. Does he still have that? No, he he actually, yeah, he says he's, he's sad that he let that one get away, but a a Japanese guy just offered it. He was, couldn't believe what the guy wanted to pay for it. So he was just like, I had to, I had to go for it. Money talks sometimes, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it, uh, it, it it got weird. It got you know everybody was very territorial back then, and uh, I I with my products at Line Six and and KRK, I could get kind of territorial as well. But I realized, you know what? So many people are doing such great work. The stuff you're doing, Dave, with your guitars, incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Tom's doing great work. John mm-hmm. is doing great work. You know. Roger Sadowski. I mean, I've loved that guy. I mean, he's just a dear friend and, and uh, everybody's doing cool work. It's just, it's like football teams, you know? And, and there's, there's, there's definitely stuff where you can go, no, that actually sounds bad, but in general, well, you know, I've always said this, even with amps and guitars or whatever, everyone does their, their recipe of -hmm. what they want to see. And then the end user really is going to decide what they want to buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 maybe they're going to buy all of them. Well, yeah, uh, you know, for the different flavors, and you know, so <clears throat> I never I never looked at it as like some competition or something or anything. Especially yeah. the amps, I was like, well, I make my sound, and Soldano makes his sound, and Ignator made his sound, and VHT made or Fryat made his sound, and uh, and it's up to you to decide which one you want, or maybe you want them all. Yeah, right. They're all that's good what makes products. it fun. Yeah, yeah. That's, it makes it exciting to, to have different visions on, mm-hmm. you know, different instruments or different amps and so forth. So, by the way, we've got Justin Bryant from uh, from Two Notes. <laughs> Justin, <laughs> you guys rock. Hey, no, Rich, Basswood hey, Dave, does hey, not sound awesome. I agree with Rich. It's Asswood. <laughs> <laughs> didn't Eddie like Basswood though? Didn't he? Uh, well, Ooh. his original guitar was wasn't Van Halen, Basswood. not originally, but he started. He started later using, on. yeah, later on. Yeah. Um, and Justin sent us a super chat. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. So, um, so let's tell the story. Uh, you tell the story, Rich. How, how did you hook up with, with James Tyler? At, you know, and then from there, go to line six. So, yeah, where did you where did you go? So, you went from Tyler to Fernandez, yeah. Right? So, then, I, I moved out here. I was going to Dick Grove and put put up that uh, place for bass. Um, I was going to Dick Grove and, okay. and Dave remembers this. That w- there was a magazine in town called BAM. It was Bay Area Music originally, but yeah. came down yeah. here and they just kept really? calling it BAM. Uh, it's a. Uh, uh, no, did, uh, did I shut it? Shut it down? Oh, maybe. All right. I'll, I'll reopen it. Give me one second. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No problem. So, um, so I'm going to Grove and I'm looking at BAM magazine in the lounge and I'm like, Oh, the place for bass. And then I looked at all the bass players 
most of, I mean, I know who all of them are now, but I was a young doofy kid. I mean, the reason I ended up in that band with Carlstrom was because I owned a bass. I had played French horn in high school, but I, I could play, I think, Owner of a Lonely Heart riff. Dung, 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 dung. And I knew you dropped a bomb on me. Yeah, that's it. So, so uh, you know, and some of those guys are now even friends, you know, like Steuben House and stuff. Um, Jason. But uh, so I saw this ad and I'm like, well, crap, I'm, that's just right over here. I'm going to drive over there and check this place out. So I went in. And he had all of this stuff, Kabiki Factors and the Ken Smith and the Tobiases. And I'm like walking down and I'm looking, he's got all this stuff. And I come and there's this bass and it's got this just horrific headstock. And I was like, ugh, who's that? Who made that? And Jim goes, that's uh, me. So anybody out there who's like, what's with the headstock? Just trust me. I was there with you, you know, and then stuck my foot. I in. love the headstock. Yeah. So, and a lot, and a lot of guys do, but, but definitely at first it was a good 95. It's grown on me. Yeah. It's grown on me. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like anything, right? There's some really crazy looking cars that at first, when I saw the design, I was just like, that's as goofy. And then when you see them kind of around a track and what they can do, you all of a sudden you're like, Oh, Hmm. But uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm at, so I bought a Kabiki factor from him. Uh, fun story there is, uh, it was a pink one. It was kind of Pepto-Bismol pink. And I took it to Grove and got just made fun of relentlessly. And uh, and then I came in the next week and I said, well, Billy Sheehan's base is this color. And so they called me Pepto-Sheehan for the rest of the semester. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so I bought that from Jim. He set up some stuff for me. I ended up buying like a five string modulus and that we eventually put a Tyler preamp in. But one day he, he, he was on Lancashire at the time. Where was making music? Well, it was on Lancashire some somewhere, yeah, but but I mean, I wasn't Tyler like near where Andy Brower was originally on on Lancashire. Bring bring up the Jakey e. Lee picture. Okay. Oh boy, so, I just saw Jay. Yeah, so so it's to Andy and Jim. So I I don't have a lot of that history. Jim doesn't talk about it a lot, but for a wow. while, Andy and Jim had shops next to each other, and they were they they work together in the sense of Jim would work on guitars. Andy would work on, you know, gear and getting it to them or whatever. And I don't remember yeah. if that was on, I think that might've been the Lancashire shop. It must've been the Lancashire. That was before me. So that must've been yeah. in the early. Or me too. Uh, my whole career. The only thing I ever knew of Andy was um, there was a, we had a ladder that said Tyler Brower, you know, that mm -hmm. I always had you know, used to get stuff down in the garage. We'll show the garage picture in a second. But, uh, um, and then we got a Christmas card one year of, of Andy in front of his Porsche in his big house said, Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah. I always thought that was funny. It was like, that's a Christmas card. Okay. But uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so they go way back, you know, J Jim, and this is just me recollecting a story again so nobody write it down in history but J jim and him were having dinner and Andy was just like gosh what do i do in life and well, what do you love andy and he's like man i love getting tone and i love you know getting stuff together and make putting things together that make cool sounds and jim's like well why don't you just do that for people you know it's like so they had that shop next to each other and i don't know much after that and i know like making music was up the street so anyway he 
lost that lease or whatever and moved over to Vineland, actually right next to Track Record, which at that point, Track Record had moved from Hollywood over yeah, to Yeah, I remember that shop. Yeah. And so yeah, this must have been late 80s then. Yeah, very late 80s. And and so I would go there and then I, I, I ended up starting to set up all the guitars for any of the bands that were at Track Record with Carlstrom, like the River Dogs. That's where I met Vivian. Yep. Uh, and I set up one of it. I set up that blue. Is it a BC Rich or a Jackson? The 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 blue one from the White Snake video, that little super yeah. thing. I set that up, and there was a note the next day. Here's nine more guitars. Do what you did to that one. And then I I talked to him on the phone. And he's like, Rich, my guitar has never played this good before. And I was like, Really? Because you've already been in Dio and <laughs> all this stuff. So what I learned from Jim you know, and took to setting up guitars. I ended up doing that. I did Allison Chain's Dirt. I was the guy on that, Orange Nine Millimeter. I set up all those guitars, which was uh, a band that had Chris, uh, oh my gosh, just one of my best buds. He's in Bush now. I'm mind cramping. Oh, Chris, um, um, Chris. Hey, uh, trainer. Uh, trainer, yeah. Yeah, so he was in Helmet as well, and Brian almost worked with Helmet, but... um so anyway, uh, so he was on Vineland and I walked into his shop one day and, and he was sitting there and I was like, what's up? And he goes, uh, I just can't seem to find people to work for me. And I'm like, I'll work for you. <laughs> and uh, so I started working for him and it was a little bitty shop and he, I started learning to do fret work and this and that. And then something went weird with the landlord and, and Jim was tired of doing repairs. And he said, you know what? I'm going to just start building guitars only. And so, yeah, the, the, the sh we, we moved to his garage. Mm -hmm. I remember that era too. Yeah. So that guitar that uh, in the upper left there, that, that ended up going to Bill Champlin um, in Chicago and was in a couple of videos. And it, it was the era when Dwayne Bailey was in there and he, what a great guitar player, but, but that was the guitars sort of being put together. And and then over on the right, that's guitars at the top that are like, like bass coated or whatever. And the bottom ones are for color. And that's Jim shooting a guitar in his backyard when he was about 36, 37 years old. And uh, this, this bench that is in the middle on the right, that's a guy named Robert Nino who used to work for him, but he would come and do repairs that bench is Jim's bench and it's still his bench in, in our current shop. If anybody ever comes by. And then that was just a Fiat. He gave me that was souped up. He, Jim's a car guy. He's a car guy and a photographer. That's what he wanted to do in life. And he, every day, every few days he'll go, I just never set out to do this. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to work on guitars. I didn't want to build guitars Yeah, to take pictures and drive fast cars, you know? So so uh, that's how I started working for him. So I worked into the garage and we did those first bunch. And then I moved back to the Midwest for a minute. Uh, I was in this band and we thought we could go back there and do the whole top 40 thing. You know, Dave, like in the 80s, you, you could be in a top 40 band and then do a few originals and build a following and then switch to all originals and hopefully build a local following and like a yep. head east, you know, bands like that would do. And uh, but this is right before everything, you know, went to crap in the music industry. But we didn't see it at that time. and. I did get to do three gigs with Bobby Kimball from Toto. So that was kind of a, a, a cool thing being a 25 year old guy who loved freaking Toto. And he was, uh, he, he sang his 
butt off. I know there's stuff now and it's, you know, people get older, but he, we, we did the, uh, we did hold the line first and, and it was over. We go, man, you sound just like the record. Cause that was like a Midwestern thing to say about a cover band. Man, yeah. you guys are just like the record. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I moved back. It was 37 below one morning and my wife is like, screw this. Let's go back to California. And even my little kids who were like two and three were like, yeah, go back to California where it's warm. Um, so I came back and almost immediately started working for him again on, on Sepulveda. And he did a, he did a short lived thing with Schechter and he's way forgotten what all that was about. But for a minute, you know, like Dan Huff was playing a, a Tyler built Schechter and, and, and that's when I would take guitars down and see Robert from Stone Temple Pilots at, at, uh, when he, when he worked at Sunset Custom and Lab Sound and with Sean Tubbs and stuff. Hmm. And, uh, so we we then moved just across the way in that same complex and that complex over on Sepulveda behind Fatburger was uh where Schechter was when, when it was Dave Schechter when it was they they built parts and bodies and necks and stuff and Pat Wilkins mm -hmm. worked there uh who's who's a killer builder and painter in in town and Tom Anderson was the body neck and body guy. So when they moved to Texas, that's when Tom's ventured off on his own. And that's where, that's actually, I think where Jim first met Tom was when he was still at Schechter. And uh, so we moved in there. So it's fun. So there's like this little history, you know, tie in and we just kept blowing out a wall and just kept expanding the shop until 94 when I left to go to Fernandez and, uh, you know, I don't even remember, like Dave said, I, I wasn't fired. I kind of left. I think it was money. You know, it's just, we were Got a better job. Yeah. Job, not a better mm -hmm. place. It was, it, it was, uh, it was, man, I met so many guys that are still good friends now, like Scott, you and Rob Timmons, arcane pickups. You know, he was, he was my, my shop manager. Yeah. He's the one who actually hired me. He called me to, he's like, Hey man, I'm, I'm looking for a gig. I can't remember if I knew him or if he called cold, but we got to know each other. Then it was like, yeah, we're not hiring right now, but I'll keep you in mind. Well, then he called me when I was just doing repairs for Jim. I was trying to do the repairs to take that pressure off of him so he could just concentrate on building. And, uh, and I was for a minute, I was like, I forget what I called myself, the guitar specialist or something. I was going to try and do, be a drum doctor type of thing, you know, mm -hmm. go to the studios, set up all the guitars, not be the tech, but just kind of prep stuff. Um, so, uh, then Rob calls me and he goes, Hey man, we're looking for a setup guy and it paid. Okay. You know, I mean, I think back now and I'm just like, really, that's all it took to get me. But, uh, but, uh, I set up guitars and we lost our accounts payable person. Well, Jim, I had been helping him with the office stuff and helping him get his taxes together and whatnot. And, uh, so I, and I was also a numbers guy. I loved math. I thought I was going to be a math teacher, you know, so I would help Jim with all that stuff and ordering and all this kind of stuff. So I was like, Hey, I used to do that for Jim. I'd love to do that. So I became accounts payable and then later accounts receivable and payroll and human resources. And I kept all the max going in the office and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, Thankfully, I did that job because that leads to what you were talking about, Mark. How, how did I end up at line six? Well, mm. Fernandez couldn't afford me anymore, so they laid me off. I even trained the person that uh, took over for me, and I, now, I was happy. Now, hang, hang on one second. Fernandez was located in California, or there? Uh, yeah. Or, uh, okay. Yeah. 
so I they were Japanese. Yeah, um, Fernandez USA. Uh, I got you. Yeah, okay. and for pe- people that don't know, it's, it's I don't think it's they have the dominance they had back then. But back then, they were sixty percent of the Asian market. They were Fender in Japan in Asia. You know, they're just massive. They had bands like X, Hide, uh, just all these massive artists, uh, X Japan, and all that stuff. And then we were we we worked with and man because of the sustainer thankfully you know instead of just being another guitar company we i ended up meeting that's when i met adrian Ballou and and um um matt scannell from vertical horizon who's still super close friend and Mm -hmm. he actually got the tyler after i left tyler's and and all these people so i got to meet a lot of folks you know because we had the sustainer the edge played you know a full-on fernandez for a while and billy Mm -hmm. corgan had one and and that, mm-hmm. that original blue um, Bill, BJ guitar that um, uh, Green Day guy has, that original one with the stickers and stuff, that's a Fernandez. His mom bought him when it used to be a Strat headstock. <laughs> so we yeah, they were that. great. They were great guitars. I mean, even the, the Strat clones and stuff that mm-hmm. were coming out of there were fantastic. Cause I, weren't, the, weren't, the, weren't they made by Fujigen? Yeah, probably. Yeah, which is yeah. great. Great, Man. great guitars. I know they had early versions of the Floyd. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, so. So you worked at Fernandez for uh, a so, bunch of time. Yeah. So then they laid me off and I, I, I was 10 years. That's a lot of uh, years nowadays to be at a place and you just start getting restless. So I was happy. I was like, I'm going to collect some unemployment and I'm going to get, I had already been doing some records and doing some weekend warrior stuff with Hartree. And uh, so, so we got into it and we did a bunch of cool stuff for about a year. And we, we normally we would grab Chris Pooley, but at one point he wasn't available and we were doing this record for, for a girl, Kylie Hughes, who was, um, her dad owned public storage. And so she had a decent budget. So we were hiring these killer players and we couldn't get Chris. So I, I had just met a guy who everybody said was a killer keyboard player named Daryl Smith. And he played on the record. And then I said, Hey man, I do this church gig out in Malibu and we play like at 105 decibels and we have a Leslie and a Hammond already there on stage. You want to come and jam like the drummer played with Eric Johnson and and Billy White and uh, Ian Moore. He's the drummer on that first Ian Moore record. Mike Viegas, he was the drummer and just a killer band. And he's like, yeah, man, sure. And so he comes out and he sees me with a jazz bass into a rack compressor, the RNC, the really nice compressor, a little half rack job, into a tube, vintage tube screamer. Uh, what was What else was on my board? Oh, Octaver, uh, EBS, and then into a Qtron into a Sansamp, into a 73 SVT at a church. <laughs> and with distortion, I would go to what I called, you know, DEFCON 1, everything on. And yeah. So he was like, they were working on, and I didn't know this, but at the time they were working on the low down bass amps at line six. So after the set, he was like, do you need a job? And I'm like, no, not really. And he goes, man, I just, you know, you use effects and it's like, we're hiring a product manager. And I'm like, I didn't even know what a product manager was. And I said, man, I'm, I'm think I'm going to keep doing this music thing. And he's like, well, it pays this much. And I'm like, Hmm, maybe I should look at that. <laughs> and not cause I needed money, but I just thought that's a salary that tells me that's a fun job. That's a job. They're looking for 
you know, a, a guy. And yeah. I, so I started kind of getting excited about it. And he writes to me and he says, Hey, Rich, uh, I think you're the right guy for the product. Perfect, I think. But do you have any financial experience? <laughs> this is before he knew my resume. I said, well, I was the controller at Fernandez. And he goes, oh, perfect. So I went in there and I interviewed. It was nerve wracking. I didn't know Marcus Ryle and, and his legend at the time. I knew he was one of the founders of Line 6. I had a beam. You know, it was easy, fun to record at home into a old Korg D8 digital recorder and dink around and a pod was great. I didn't have to bother the neighbors, but that's about all I knew about line six. And in fact, I, I tried the base pod and didn't like it. I found out years later why. And uh, so they hired me to do low down base amp. Then it went to spider three with all the artist presets. And when I heard spider two and they said, what we're going to do is just put artist presets in it. I said, well, can we fix how it sounds? <laughs> and they go, we're not going to spend any money remodeling, but if you can work with sound design and make it sound better, I said, I think I can. So I went and I saw the tools that we use for, for shaping. I couldn't remodel, but I could shape some stuff. And I got Scannell uh, and Tim Pierce and uh, Bobby and a couple other guys. And I would, I let them play. And, you know, like on those spider amps, the clean was always fun, especially with effects. And then the insane was just way more gain than you could ever make a record with, but it was just super fun for a kid. But the mid gain stuff was like, this is, yeah, that was the bad part. Yeah. Oh, horrible. So I got it to a place where I was over at Tim's and he said, rich, I got to tell you, I could probably do a I could probably mic that up right now and record because you really made the mid gain stuff sound way more authentic. It wasn't just me. It was me and, and Jeff Slingloff who's now at boss and doing all that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, I mean, he, he just killed it. And, and I, that was me at line six. People ask anybody. I was the guy who just, I would get like that dog and I'd be like, I'm not letting go, you know? So, so we did spider three with all the artist presets. And then that's when we did the partnership with Reinhold Bogner. And uh, my short list personally was, was uh, Stevie. Friette, you know, because hello, he already had it. We wanted to put our modeling on the front end of an amp. And I was just like, well, let's just do that, you know, if he's interested. Mm -hmm. And the reason we went with Reinhold is because when they modeled the the Ubershaw, and this is the story they told me, because we kind of only really, I think we only really reached out to Reinhold because uh, Daryl knew him really well. And of course, I, I met him on the Allison Chains Dirt when he brought down the fish. And that ended up being a big part of dirt. And, uh, and then just over the years, I just stayed in touch with him because he's just one of my favorite crazy guys ever. And uh, so um, when we did the, they did the Uber shawl before me, he didn't call up mad. He didn't call up. He didn't send cease and desist. He said, Hey, I heard you're modeling my Uber shawl. Can I, can I send you my favorite? Can you model that one? And then when you have it ready, can I come and help tweak it? So he got the fact that thousands of kids were going to see this name Ubershaw Bogner, mm -hmm. you know, and be like, well, what, I wonder what the real one is like, you know? And, and, uh, there was a, there's a famous, uh, pedal company that'll go unnamed and he was furious. But when I talked to him later, I became good friends with him. I said, come on, man. When line six put that pedal in there, in, in their stuff, in the, in the, I think it was in the, 
it wasn't in the DL4. It was, it was a weird effect. I said, did you see a sales spike? He, and he kind of was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like you didn't want to say, yeah, <laughs> you know. So, so anyway, I did that. And, and those two amps, the, the, the spider three, and then the spider valve with Bogner, we had two amps under 500, they were 499 and the X3 had just come out. That gave us line six's first hundred million dollar year. And we became 51% of the under 500 market for, for a little bit, quite a while. And then of course, everybody went, we better do this. And there was the, you know, the Mustang and I think Marshall did something and, you know, everybody started going, we better, you know, get in this game. And, you know, so, so we did that. And then here, here comes, wow, this Bogner thing worked great. How can we revive the Variax? Because when I was talking to guys, like I constantly talked to customers. I was like, when I was at Fernandez, they came over to show see how to set up a guitar because we had a whole setup shop they were trying to see what it would take for line six to go into guitars and they knew that bringing them over you have to tweak them put them back in the box and send them out so they came over and when that guitar came out of the bag this is we all had to be under nda at that point it came out of the bag and i thought oh my gosh we only had to make people get past a headstock at tyler how are you going to get people past the whole guitar (laughs) (laughs) it was just like this uh so they did, and then of course they did improvements. You know, the 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 one that kind of had a Paul Reed Smith vibe to it was really cool, and they refined it, you know, over the years. But the no pickups thing, when when I said, "Hey, let's revamp Variax," I mean Daryl Smith. Whenever I talk about what I did at Line Six, it's re- really me and this guy Daryl Smith, who's who who has since gone on to he's doing he works with TED Talks and does audio visual stuff for like massive venues and all kinds of stuff. And uh, so him and I, uh, uh, we were like, hey, we told Line 6, first off, it's got to be a great guitar. So when the electronics stop working, because it's outdated or whatever, you still have a guitar that you could just put volume pots in and still rock a guitar. So it has to have pickups. And they said, yeah, but with no pickups, it really tells people that it's, and I go, yeah, but it's a hot chick with no eyebrows. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you go to the store, you know, and it's early morning and a, a mom has to grab their kids some milk and she doesn't have time to draw, you know, those women that shave their eyebrows and they, you know, and they're really cute, but they're like, you're, you're like, something isn't right, you know? <laughs> so, and it's also a, its own backup. You're playing, you're, you're doing middle of Skinner and, your your the guts die or the battery dies or whatever boom you're on electric pickups you can finish the gig you don't have that fear so and i just knew that if we we let a guitar builder do what bogner did for the the tube side of stuff i I just knew it'd be huge so i talked to anderson and sadowski and i talked to jim and a bunch of people and i ultimately knew that jim was going to push line six the hardest so we did the james tyler variax it's still selling today which is crazy for a technology product to still be going 12 years later and uh i left line six uh on purpose to start mixing records and i moved in with carlstrom and i'll just give you the rest of my little story and i was there and it was going great we would get people to spend most of their money recording it well and i would mix in the box if the budget was this big you know we'd send the mother load recording it well because if you capture great sounds the mix almost happens on its own yep. and 
it was going great. And then he had, sadly had a heart attack and passed away, you know, at 51 years old and, and in 2012. And he was like my best bud out here, you know? So it, it was, it was crazy. And we had the SSL and all the outboard gear and all. So we knew it was going to be hard to keep it going without a name like his. So I saw the writing on the wall, moved to this place, my studio. And uh, I was just mixing and I was looking for a part-time gig and KRK fell in my lap. Uh, they were looking for a product manager and I didn't want a full-time gig, but I thought, well, let me just go see what it's about. And I went in jeans and a t-shirt just like this. Cause I was like, they either want what I do or they don't. I'm not going to wear a suit and act all corporate. I'm going to go in and tell them what I think. And I said, first off, I didn't even know KRK was still around. And they looked at me like I was crazy because they sold the crap out of those rockets. I had mm -hmm. never seen a rocket. I don't even know how that's possible now because all I see is rockets everywhere. <laughs> But I knew that there used to be guys using, you know, the 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 E series and the V series, like Joe Barisi, his still one of his main mixed speaker with all his speakers, the guy who did Tool and Queens of the Stone Age, for those of you that don't know, um, is still a pair of V6s, you know. So he was on my team to redo the V series and and Pensado's using them now and and just, you know, Mark Mark uh, uh crap down at east west i'm mind cramping anyway it was a blast and i did that for five years and then gibson went if anybody I, there's certain things i can talk about the gibson bankruptcy was crazy the people running it now i gotta tell you they're awesome um it's hard to step into any place and you're gonna have detractors but jc cares you know and that team is, is a good team and and they they kind of fixed gibson and then they started looking at pro audio i was working for pro audio so we were serwin vega and stanton as well so they sold those brands and moved caricade to nashville i got five grandkids here so boom and then i'm talking to two notes i'm talking to some other companies about my next moves and i'm also ramping up my mixing and right before covid i got a gig doing disney and marvel special features i had to go through police background checks to even walk in the building and I got the gig and it was supposed to start. And another friend from who works at Disney, a killer guitar player named Brian Kahanik, he works in the union. And so he's like, I know the path. I'll get you doing this and I'll get you doing, I'm like, I guess I'm mixing and then COVID. Right. And then I'm in COVID and I get a text. I'm doing, I'm actually ended up getting really busy. I mixed a big church in Houston because everybody was broadcasting. So they would record and then I'd mix it and they'd broadcast on Sunday. So I was doing okay. And then Jim said, Hey, can you, some of my people were scared and uh, you know, I'm, I'm down a bunch of people. Can you just come help me, you know, shield and wire a few pick guards. And so I went back down and cause I've stayed obviously friends with Jim over the years and uh, I'm helping him out. And he wanted to re hit announced his retirement. And I said, what do you want to do? And, and he's like, I go, if, if you move on, Tyler will live on, you know, but will people still be into it? I said, but what if the guy who was there with you in your garage, you know, and did the James Tyler Variax with you came back and we, you know, we, we do this thing together. Um, could it be a thing where you semi-retire and you do stuff like get the set net going and the bass is going, he's, there's all these things he's wanted to do that he never had time for. And he said, yeah, I mean, that sounds great. And I said, well, let me help you build a team. So I found, uh, we found a guy from a, a pickup guy who worked at Exotic. We grabbed him. And then I, I can't, oh, one of my, my, one of my uh, dealers 
knew a guy named Andy Hicks who was at Exotic at the time, and they they also had layoffs because of COVID. I know that, that was the guy, Dave, that I told you about um, that I met at Nam, who worked for Exotic, who was a builder. Oh, okay. Yeah, he had worked for Fender, um, specifically Jackson and Gretsch. So mm-hmm. electric guitars, hollow body, real skilled guy. I, and I could tell that he would he would understand to do it the Tyler way. And then yeah. and Jim Jim's great. Jim will go, look, you can have ideas, but learn my way. Then give me your ideas. And well, yeah, that's back. the important that's the important thing. It's the the reason uh, anyone's guitar is anyone's guitar, like be it a Tom Anderson, a Don Grosh, a Jim Tyler is because they have a way of doing things and their way is what has made that guitar special. Cause in reality, when you look at any guitar, it's a piece of maple in the neck and it's a, it's a piece of alder there shaped in whatever shape it is. It's the same. Yep. There's no magic there. The magic is in the final yeah. setup assembly and the little details of the way yeah. it's done. Yep, exactly. You know, how rolled the edges of the neck are, how polished the ends of the frets are, how how beautifully polished the frets are, you know, like all this yeah. stuff. I mean, you can take a you can take a cheap guitar, yep, and do all this stuff and with the same hardware. It's it's just as good as the expensive guitar. Of course, there's a lot of time now put into it, so now yeah. it is an expensive guitar. Yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, it's 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 like your it's like it's the recipe yeah, it's the recipe. Exactly. So he he's been great. So he he kind of took over the stuff that Jim was doing. He's doing the the final setups and he does all the neck work. And then he just helps me run the shop. I'm general managing and, and he runs the shop. And and we, we hired a couple more killer cats. And there's a guy there named Tucker who's been there for like 11 years. He's our paint guy is just we, we we actually just named a finish after him. We were working on a finish and he can't, it wasn't going where Jim wanted. And Tucker goes, I got an idea. And he finished it off and it looked super cool. It's like purple and blue. It, it's one of those schmear finishes and we called mm-hmm. it Tuckerberry. But uh, I, I increased production at the beginning of the year 33% over what Jim had ever done. And, and with this team, you know, are able to, you know, cruise along. And it, you know, Dave, you know, challenges. Jim was asking me actually how, how it was going, you know, with the fire and everything. And I was filling him in a little bit, but, uh, but, you know, there's always challenges and I can't even imagine going through something like the freaking place burning. Well, you know, like I say, you know, luckily it wasn't just my company that I had to deal with this. You know, it was the the parent company that makes our products, Boutique Amps Distribution, and I got I got to hand it to Avi for not uh, not having a heart attack during the whole thing, <laughs> because oh my god, <laughs> it, it's just like you have this happen and you have all this smoke damage and then you're just throwing out, you're you're literally throwing out rolls of Tolex and roll and and cabinet after cabinet and product after product throwing it out because you can't use it and it's not that we were fire damage it was smoke damage you know because our part of the building wasn't burned you know it was just like one end it burned through a wall so there was a little bit of water damage and stuff at that end but there wasn't that much stuff there but yeah but then you got to move yeah so you got to move not a small shop you got to move a fifty-three thousand square foot building that has 
been there for 15 years full of junk. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of the junk, when we sized down, uh, at one point in time, it was 80,000 square feet, but they kind of sized down to 50 because the landlord had raised the rate. And they threw a light way a lot of junk then. Mm-hmm. And now this move has forced them to throw away even more stuff that was, you know, it's just like buried in the corner, you know, that you forget about over time. Yeah. And um, that, that's what Jim's fearing right now. We, we were on a, a six month lease. Our building got sold and the new landlord's great. And so he's basically we re up each month. So yeah. at some point he might go, you know, I need the whole building. And I'm just like, oh, uh, and we only have 8,000 square feet. Well, you know, I got to tell you, the other the other huge problem in, in Los Angeles now is uh, real estate. It's just through the damn roof. It's crazy. I mean, rental real estate, commercial real estate. I'm sorry. It's just gone out of control, completely yeah. out of control. I, I don't even I mean, it, it's funny. You would have thought some of it would have come down with covid a little bit right and in actuality during the last year it's gone up yeah i I look i randomly look at commercial real estate from time to time and i'm like i can't believe how much money they're getting for this yeah you know it's like yet you go to another state you know i know someone that's in you know uh, oregon or whatever and he he got a 10,000 square foot building and he pays $700 a month or something. <laughs> Unreal. You know, so and, like, and you know, our, what we're up against in our industry is we could go there, but are we going to find the guys that know how to do what we do? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a huge problem, especially guitars, especially yeah. guitars. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, yeah. Workforce. Will you have the workforce to do it? Exactly. No. Yeah. Yeah, our, our rent went up and, and I've been looking around and, and, you know, what's funny is Jim, even, even when the building went up for sale, we were like, oh, maybe we should just nab it. Then it's an investment. You know, we, we, we could rent out the other six units. It's, it's like an eight unit place. And I looked at the price and I was like, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Cause he, cause he had a recollection of it being like one fifth of what it ended up going for. Yeah, what I I went for probably a couple million over a couple million. Uh, it was five or six. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Way over. And and uh, um, and you know, we know about costing, and you you know what that line means in your you know your rundown of your lot profit and loss, and it's like it's brutal, you know, so. That's another so, reason. So when, when, when all you guys wonder about why things cost certain things, this is a factor in it. Exactly. Yeah. It's no, believe me. Um, Overhead, you, uh, employees, salaries. But then people will go like, like what I, what you just said, well, why don't you just move out of California, go somewhere else. But like you said, finding the skilled workers, finding cool. people to be able to do it is a challenge. And our people are here. Exactly. And you know, and, and, People don't always think about it. It's like they look at a product as in, okay, here's the cost of materials and here's the cost in labor to make it. Okay. Oh, that's the cost of it. No, that's not the cost of it. No. Uh, factor in overhead, all your insurances. Factor in your, uh, uh, say say you have an accountant. accountant. 
Say yep. you have a uh, a uh, a product, uh, not product manager, but uh, say you have a um, production manager. Mm-hmm. So a production manager is not a cheap figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, an accountant is not a, a cheap figure. Uh, say you have a marketing guy that does marketing or or does web based stuff and all this stuff. So so say you too. have you know say you have three or four people that are over a hundred thousand salaries. Mm-hmm. Plus your overhead in a year. Add that all up, and then like divide that by the number of product you go out, and then see how much more that tax onto it. Yeah. Then you have then you then you ship it to a, a dealer. A dealer. Uh, so you have to make some money there because that's the point of the whole thing is to actually make some money, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, and and then the dealer marks it up from there. Yep. Another percent set of percentage points. So. You know, it's it's not something that's coming from China that costs two hundred bucks. You know, if you look at a, a like a Chinese business model or something like of making, say you're making uh, cheap amps or something. If you look at a, a Chinese business model, uh, you spec the stuff, you design the stuff, you send it off. It gets made. It comes to a, a warehouse and gets stored, and then it gets shipped out. Mm-hmm. So how many employees do you need? <laughs> yeah. You might be able to run it all on like four people. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. Like, you know, like you, you need someone in the office that can do multiple things and stuff. And like, you can, you can just, you know, just shuffle paper basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have as many employees as we had at Fernandez USA and we were shipping out 30, 40 guitars a day mm-hmm. and I do eight a week because yeah. it's, it's a totally different thing because you know, they come in and I got to tell you a funny story. You brought up China when I was, you know, cruising around trying to pick a factory and we ultimately landed on world that does like the Paul Reed Smith SE series and stuff. Mm-hmm. Cause I never, I never thought, and I still believe, you know, they have one that's a more affordable one, but I never thought that a very that what it does was for the kid to get for Christmas, his first guitar, that's going to end up under a bed. I always thought it was going to be a guy that's at at least a certain level where he's gigging, he's doing top 40s, playing at a yeah. church, whatever, you know, uh, a few. And, and then we had the American made one for, for, you know, garbage and guys like that, that get what it does and they do crazy stuff with it. Or like um, 10, 12 foot ninja guy, who's a good friend. I loved what he did with the shuriken. Um, but uh, I was in China though. We, we, we looked, you know, I went, I went to a, uh, Yako, which was a place that uh, did a lot of the Fernandez stuff, the Chinese made stuff, and they did a great job. But I went to a place and uh, I just remember seeing a room that was, I don't know, it had to have been at least 4,000 square feet. And all it was is this uh, uh, conveyor of black strap bodies and then go down a row and it would go back and forth and go down a row and back and forth, just hundreds of them. And that was like a day. And I, I just thought, how come in life we don't go over to a friend's house and have to walk over guitars to get anywhere? There should be guitars everywhere, but you, I don't know. We just must hide them perfectly because <laughs> you just never see them. You, I mean, well, Mark's got his all up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Dave. <laughs> Actually, I all I have is, I don't know if anybody knows what those are behind me. Those, Well, it's obviously an engine, but there was a, uh, a campaign that before I got to line six, uh, for the pod where they, th- there was four channels, clean, uh, crunch, 
insane and drive. Mm-hmm. So these, these were drive and, and it's a, it's a guitar, you know, there's the headstock and, uh, clean was a va- electrolux vacuum cleaner. Pretty fun. And then, um, uh, um, crunch was a bug like you know you step on a bug right. and then insane was a rusty razor blade razor blade but anyway i'm a car guy so these were just in offices so i grabbed the first one and then when i moved into artist relations over at line six for about a year i had that other one and i had them up and so when i moved in here and left line six i went oh this is perfect <laughs> so, it looks yeah. cool it looks cool by the way um I think we have some super chats, Mark. Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, Solar Warden um, wanted to know since she wor- worked at Line Six. Did uh, do you know how many actual Mustang Line Six prototype amps were ever made? Only a couple. Um, that the guys who did that hard work, uh, you know, they did an amazing job. And and this is before we taught Line Six that we could sell, you know. Four thousand, five thousand dollar JTVs. You know those did pretty well. I think they've even made some recently. A few. The guy who did all the American-made JTVs was a guy named Tim Wilson who worked it with Grover for years. Um, Jackson and uh, you guys know Grover, right? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Tim did that. I think he's still done some recently. But um, that Friedman. I, I mean the the Dave Mustaine amp looked super cool and he started using it he did a video got like two hundred fifty thousand views almost immediately but they couldn't wrap their head around a boutique and by that i just mean high-end um thing because what they were doing they did with the their engineer and and they figured out how to you know mold two sounds together like they modeled two sounds and stacked them kind of like you would he was trying to achieve that thing that you do in the studio where you stack different amps Mm-hmm. just on the fly right there and and it sounded pretty great and we were like let's just chart it they can be this much people will buy them but what it's going to do is halo over everything we do the same thing happened with helix by the way if there's any helix fans out there when when i came to line six in 2005 they had already had quite a few meetings which they had codenamed this product formula one and I didn't even know why. I just thought it sounded cool because I'm a car guy, right? Well, years later, it didn't even dawn on me when I used the same analogy at KRK when Gibson uh, was acquired by KKR Investments, who owned GoDaddy and the UFC and, uh, uh, gosh, what else? Sonos, all these, you know, they acquired us. So now we're do- in meetings with people that I know are not going to understand why I want to do the expose line again, the high-end KRKs, which are like, three grand a piece, 3,500, 4,000 a piece. They couldn't wrap their head around it. I, I knew that they wouldn't get it. So I showed a Honda Formula One car and a Civic. And I explained, they lose money even making this car. And we're not going to lose money, but we're not going to make a lot of money doing this high-end KRK. But everything Honda learns in the suspension and all that ends up in a civic and you end up with happier customers. Plus you have a guy in a civic thinking he's in the formula one car. So, and then later somebody goes, well, dude, that's why we called that project formula one, you know? And the idea was to put as much DSP and as much power as they had to. And this is probably right around the time cliff was getting started maybe with fractal. Maybe this, again, this is just Mm -hmm. my 
section and cliff just became he became a good good friend um not a close friend but I, we talked because you know we both had to battle the boards and crazy people on the forums and stuff and <laughs> he he would take it to heart and actually cause health problems and i would always call him and and be like dude you just let it roll off you know and and don't take everything too seriously or whatnot but anyway uh, so we did the pod HD 500 and of course our floor pod uh, any, you know, the, the, the floor models was always, we were always being chased by all the other big companies and, you know, we were always number one and, but we were losing the mindshare game to, to cliff and fractal and then, and then Kemper. So we got into a meeting and my Steve DeFuria head of uh, product development said, okay, let's not forget budget. Let's pretend this thing might even end up being $14,000 or whatever. Let's not even think about that. Let's, what do we want? What would be a unit that could work for, for a guy? And we started talking about it and we came up with this thing that we didn't even know what we could call it. Cause we kind of already knew we didn't want to call it pod, but um, it was a $1,500 pod though. And we took it to sales and marketing and, and, and leadership staff. We would do these meetings where we would pitch products to them. Ultimately it was our, decision and they almost always would go with what product development it was our asses like if some if a product went out there and it didn't sell the sales guy <laughs> didn't get in a lot of trouble we did and some companies aren't like that product development just pushes stuff at sales and then they're screwed and they're like they're getting yelled at but no we would so uh we showed them this thing and they were like fifteen hundred dollar pod you guys are crazy and we explained the whole formula one thing you know about how it'll drive the sales of the hc 500 well when it launched it just blew up and now you know they didn't ever do an update to the hd 500 and now they came out with pod go that's based on helix and stuff so fun story i don't know mm -hmm. if anything was that's that cool good stuff um, but there you go one. yeah cars <laughs> l scott music is there a room in the guitar world for an old guy to make modest living doing custom guitars in his home shop yeah yeah, maybe. I see. I see guys every year at Nam Show, and I, I think it's a it's a a long road, and I'm sure Dave feels the same. You know, it's it's a it's a hard road. The thing, the thing that was great about the guitar builders we know is, and this is why another reason it's hard to move from Southern California or or a, a place with a lot of music is this is where we meet the guys that help us make great products. You know, this is where the artists live and or come to. You know. Mm -hmm that don't live here they ultimately will be in los angeles mm -hmm. you know but why not you know if you if you build don't, it don't, you know. don't count on it being your sole income though no no and my, my suggestion is if you do something like that it's um do it for the love it's of it. a little sideline to make a little extra money you know uh and then you see where it goes you know and and at some point if it if it builds uh yeah. it becomes more you know yeah. and maybe maybe you can but yeah tough road it is it's hard yeah i would say I'm that i want to design i want to you know i i want to get into making my own amps and stuff i'm like going okay well it, it it's not going to be easy yeah yeah i have a friend a local friend here mark funk who does his own guitars builds bodies and necks from scratch and does his own thing and but it's not his full-time gig you know yeah. um but he builds great stuff um ed Pittman. 
thanks for the super chat. I think this is your comment here. Tyler have the most wonderful necks. Loving the show, guys. Thanks. Cool. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, and then Rummy, uh, thanks for the super chat. Thanks to Mark for the small box fifty recommendation. Reminds me of my JCM eight hundred, but with options that I can only wish with a Marshall a Marshall had the Plexi channel. Oh my. Sweet. Awesome. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm glad that you got it. Perfect. Um, we have some other super chats. Vipas Patil, how are you? Uh, hey, folks, just joined. Can you please talk about the mid-boost and how it's voiced? Any t- tips who this is suited for and who it isn't? Sure. Well, we... Uh, well, it's a mid-boost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, it's 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 a really 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 low mid boost because it's it's actually down the peak of it is really actually down near a hundred. But and and let's see if I do this correctly. Yeah, is that right? So so the 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 low end, you know, it pushes up those mids as well, and right. and it, you know Demeter, it's a Demeter and to Jim Specs, and we've worked with Jim Demeter for years, and. uh it's funny. I never really measured it before, but we built a guitar for Sean Tubbs and, and he, he got it and he, and because you can completely bypass it, he's like, yeah, let's try it, you know? And he got it. And when he first got it, you can go watch his video. He, he's very candid about it. Um, he said, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. Then I started messing around and I realized, Oh, if you don't use the mid boost, it's still that preamp. And when you kick in a preamp, the big thing that happens is it goes from, um uh high impedance to to low impedance mm-hmm. so when you a high impedance signal rounds off the the top and the bottom and then you kick kick in the preamp and it opens up the top and the bottom and it can be really cool for clean and certain things but where you get in trouble with is when the you know Jim did that back in the 80s with the racks and everything so when vintage jams come start coming back in and the vintage sound that mid boost opening up that low end and high end wasn't there when guys like Dave and were developing their sound that's in the amp. So they were high five. Yeah. Like me at line six, the whole time I was there, I used my Fernandez P bass for testing everything. That's going to be the guitar. That's going to be the bass that almost everybody has. Or I knew that sound well enough that I designed the bass amp to, to cater to that. And then it could work with other stuff. So same thing, guitar builders, we're grabbing a Paul, we're grabbing a Strat, you know, we're, we're making sure that, you know, and we're designing. So, so the, but the mid boost is still handy because you, like you can use it like with a single coil at the neck, you can put it, your neck pick up and roll a little bit of mids into it and get more of a jazz sound out of it. You can uh, just, especially with racks and, and, you know, getting that really high gainy thing, you can roll that up and it just gives you a push, you know, and that kind of thing. So, so it has its place, you know, and Jim used to not uh, do, it was just a preset by bypass. So you, your preamp was on, on all the time. Hmm. And then eventually you realize that people need to be able to kick that preamp out. Yeah, so true it, bypass. Yeah. It becomes a flavor now that you can use with, you know, and Jim builds all his own pickups now and, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's still, a booster. It's a booster at a certain frequency. So it's like yeah. you had a clean boost on your pedal board and you were kicking it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not it, it. And it has, like he said, a little bump in the low mid kind of area yeah. and it's round. And it, there yeah. you go. I'm sure you, you probably even change that frequency easily. 
we, we uh, I, I, you know, being coming from line six, I was talking to Jim about exactly that and maybe talking to Jim Demeter about a way a guy could kind of select maybe, because there's some other key for Like when I think mid boost as a mixer, like on guitar, I like when I'm mixing heavy guitars, I like to, you know, roll the low end, high end off and give it a little three K, you know, just like, yeah. You know, but 3K there, or 2K or somewhere yeah, in there. Low mid is for me, if I want to put a little ass in a guitar, like when I was running sound for Volto, some venues, I would put a little 500 on John's sound, you know, just mm -hmm. a little bit, you know. So it would be cool if there's like maybe like three. Yeah, a setting, a switch that has three choices yeah. of where mm -hmm. that, uh, yeah, the, yeah. where the point is and, on the, in the queue. And Dave knows this. It's like, and I, I know Dave has way more ideas come to him than, than come to me, but all these ideas come to us and they come to Jim and, you know, and you just can't do them all. <laughs> sure. You have to stop what you're doing to, you know, so. Right. Focus, yeah. focus, focus. Uh, Tyler Britton or Britain. Thanks for the super chat. Uh, any fond memories of Jerry when you set up his guitars for the dirt album? Uh, Dave knows him way more than me. I, I met him two, three times over the years. Um, Cause I would come in when they were still sleeping, you know, mm. but uh, I'm pretty sure that on dirt, I don't remember. There might've been a Les Paul, but it was all those uh, music mans. Um, uh, Ernie, uh, yeah. Music man. Or GNL. GNL. Sorry. Yeah. GNL. Yeah. With all the, the crazy yeah. stuff painted yeah. on all of them and, but I would set up the basses and the guitars and, and I was around the sessions. I, I went down my, the first time I saw Jerry, he came walking through and he said something to Lane, you know, like, and it sounded like he said, said something to the effect of being a Midwest guy. I thought it sounded like, Hey man, we got to slot the hogs, <laughs> you know, like just very matter of fact. And, and Lane was, you know, quiet and soft spoken. Uh, but Carlstrom calls me up and he goes, you got to come down here right now. And I'm like, okay, David just finished uh, his mix on Rooster and it was at El Dorado and they have Tad speakers. It's those massive in the wall speakers. And this is unmastered too. Mm -hmm. He cranks it. Da -da, the quiet part. And I'm just like, oh my God. And then it goes through that first half of the chorus and it hits and I just peed a little. <laughs> yeah i can only imagine oh because you've never heard anything like it i mean now now it's like just lore it's just part of our love of but it was i almost felt like i forgot how to make music and i forgot that i was a musician and it felt like the first time i heard van halen or something i was just like i have a similar kind of story but not quite it wasn't in the studio unfortunately but uh when i started working with jerry again in recent times the the black gives way to blue record hadn't come out yet Mm -hmm. And he had a copy of it. And he goes, you guys want to hear it? We sat in his Cadillac Escalade and I, and, and, and what had, which had a great sound system and he had it cranked up. And I remember hearing, I, I, uh, looking in view, I think we were listening to, and I remember hearing this snare and just this amazing mix. And I was just like floored how good it sounded. <laughs> you know, that, that, that was, um, Toby, right. Uh, who mixed it? Yeah, who did that? No, no. Um, that's um um of course I can't remember right now. It's uh the guy who used to work with Bob Rock all the time. Oh crud. Uh you know, uh 
Um, <laughs> go on. Go on. Sorry, Mike. We're, we're old. We yeah. can't remember this. Go ahead. You're looking right now, look aren't up, you? Rich, and yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll answer this question. Thank you. I, I'll, I'll think of it as soon as you find it. Uh, Joshua Floyd, is it possible to make a BE and JBE switch on the JJ Jr. foot switchable? Yes, I do that all the time. I can do it. You add an extra master, so when you go to the the JBE, it, you have control over the level. Um, yeah, can do that. Easy. Ooh, wow, I may need to want to do that. <laughs> oh, Nick. Rescalino. No, no, no. He was the producer. Oh, okay. Who? Oh, mixer. So, oh, mixer. Okay, let me go That's, down. Um, um, Nick. Nick uh, is kick ass. I love that guy. Uh, here we go. Uh, personnel. Uh, oh, Randy Stobb. Randy Stobb. Yeah. Yeah. He so Randy Stobb did that record, and then he did the record after that. Nice. And then the one after that was Joe Barisi. Joe. Um. That's right. Yeah. The la the, the last. They're one. very different sounding. Uh, the two mixers very different sounding. Yeah. Uh, personally, I, for for Alice, I love I love Randy Stobb. Yeah. Uh, because he made it sound massive and huge, and just the snare and the drums and everything just was like crazy awesome sounding. Yeah. Um, Joe made it a little more punk rock, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I love Joe. See, this is. I knew someone was going to say that. Cost because you live in California. Well, I mean, well, that that adds to it, I'm sure. Oh, well, yeah. yes and no. I mean, yes, it adds to it in some of your taxes and so, and 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 how much your actual physical building costs. Yeah, um, and, and a little bit your personnel because the cost of living is a little. A high. little bit of your personnel because you, you know your minimum wage is at least. 15 bucks and and a little bit there uh but still you're higher and but you still have the same issues you still have insurances you still have um you still have a production manager that's making over 100k you still have you know other high-end people marketing guys aren't cheap you know things you still have all sales guys everything all that comes into the part of the product you know and like you said if you're going to move to some place that's going to be really cheap good luck finding some well yeah you know the other the other thing is if you uh you know the funny thing i always say is like there's a point you come as a company like you could you can do it out of your garage to a point yeah and then you have to decide if you go bigger yeah and if you go bigger you might as well go much bigger yeah and um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that just because you doubled or tripled the size of your company, you're making any more money than you were in the garage. Correct. <laughs> no, because it, of the cost. Yeah. Right. It, it, and it's you, you start to see a little more, but it just it's not, you know, I, I know that Jim has done decent in his life, but he is not living high on the hog. You know, I mean, we no, I no remember, one is doing this. I remember one uh, April Fool's. I did the worst day. I stopped doing April Fool's jokes after this. I was really good at them and I had, I had fun doing them, but this one was so mean that I just stopped. Um, <laughs> we had seven guitars. We, I mean, if I showed you guys that green book, it's, it's fun to watch how many guitars, like, like the early nineties, there might be like a, a page and a half, you know, and now it's, you know, 380 guitars a year, mm -hmm. which 
we're we're as far as builds go, we're we're a, we're small small, but but we also just spend way more time on 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 everything, and you know, and our, we're in demand, and we, I can't I can't I could build probably well for sure. I can't even guess. Like I just it's always pressure for more guitars, mm-hmm. but uh, but uh, we we had built seven guitars for our Japanese distributor, and it was going to pay me. You know, I would I was I would have to sometimes wait weeks to get paid, but I loved Jim and we were friends, you know, and it was hard. And my wife was working at the time and um so we could you know, we could hang in there and then get paid, you know. So Jim needed to get paid to pay his bills and me and he comes in on April first and I just said, Hey man, uh yeah, T called and and he just doesn't want the guitars. What? He sits down, which he never does. And he's like, what's what's going on? I go, I don't know. He just doesn't want to take the guitars. He said something about it being April 1st, and he just doesn't want to deal with it. Does he ever want them? I don't know. I guess I should give him a call. I don't even know what we're going to do, you know. And he goes, well, I don't understand. I go, Jim, all I know is he kept saying something about April 1st. And then all of a sudden it hit him, and he didn't laugh. He just, he his eyes got like this big, and he said, don't you ever do that again (laughs) that's where we were at then it was like you know now if one or two guitars are running behind you know they're going to ship the next week you know or the week after that there's a guy you know might be watching the cat in in um in france waiting for his special like kickback guitar that has like all the bells and whistles and the old james tyler pickups and and even pearl buttons on the tuners and the whole shebang named arthur uh, who's, who's a big fan. So, you know, what's old is new again. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we don't have that anymore. I couldn't pull that April. He'd be like, Oh, they don't. Okay. Well see if so-and-so wants to grab them. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, Casey McNerney. Thanks for the super chat. I think this is your question. I've seen photos of EVH at line six. Do you know what, if anything might've developed? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of NDAs involved, obviously. Um, but I, I was telling Mark this. Oh, story. I remember that. Yeah, he. Uh, I mean, they, I don't know him. I, I met Michael, you know, because Jim Tyler did the the. So Michael and his and and um, his wonderful, awesome tech. I'm mind cramping, Dave. Matt. No, no, Michael's the bass player. Kevin um, Dugan. Yes, Kevin and him. And their tech at the time built that first Jack Daniels bass, just kind of carved it and got a thing on. It was going to be a one-off, you know, to, or a couple shows and ha ha, look at my Jack Daniels bass. And then when they went to, it was such a hit, they wanted to build full on one. So, so that's my only, I met Michael once and he was just super nice. So sweet. And, uh, but Eddie, I, he, uh, he, he was working on something that, that uh, ultimately be, we, we kind of used that technology to do a thing called backtrack, which we didn't do many products that kind of came and went, but that was one of them. But it was a, it was a box about yay big and you plugged your guitar in and then out to your amp. And it would, anytime you were playing, it would sense it and turn on and record and make a file automatically. So you could be at a rehearsal and just be jamming and then take it home and then be able to run it through a plug-in or whatever and, and go, oh, I like that. I like what we did on that. I'm going to make that a song or whatever. So you didn't have to think about it. 
and it wouldn't be just you turn on a recorder and it's going and there's air and all the talking yeah. and everything. So, so, but when he came in, a funny story, Marcus Ryle was talking to him and was like, where, where, where should I park? And it's like anywhere you want. So he, we had this big square building out in the Gore Hills. It was at when we were in the Gore Hills and it was a square building and there was a, a side, a stair, staircase and a sidewalk that went out to the parking lot about here. He came in and parked up on the sidewalk, <laughs> right up to the stairs in his Mercedes and just parked there. And he, this was when he had the long hair and his teeth were messed up before he got sober. And, uh, and they were, working on stuff and geeking out. And he's, Dave knows this, I'm sure, you know, he's, he's, he's really a guitar geek, just like any of us. I mean, he just loved gear. It was fun to listen to him talk. And I was coming down the hall and he introduced himself to me just briefly. Like I just was leaving him alone. I had nothing to do with the project product project. So I, I just walked by him and he's like, Hey, and I'm like, Hey, and then he turns around and he goes, Hey, I'm Eddie Van Halen. And I go, Oh, nice to meet you. And he's sweet. But uh, they asked him to sign this, we, uh, we named everything in line six, like uh, Village Vanguard or Let's Meet in the Roxy. It's, you know, offices and then all the stairwells and stuff like we had Stairway to Heaven in the back. And so we had this one that was uh, something Van Halen. So we asked him to sign it and he signed the wall instead, misunderstood. And so we had his signature there. And then when we <laughs> went to Calabasas, they went to the janitor and said, hey, so uh, just like like let's cut out the drywall and then we're going to frame it and we'll bring it to the new building and he totally misunderstood and cleaned the wall oh <laughs> but but I, nothing ever came out of it i think he still had a guitar that basically had like sort of a recorder built in and we were trying to do some stuff and he was nothing but cool you know yeah that's awesome yeah. so then the whatever he was working on that that's what became that jam track thing but yeah sort of the tech tech of it not it was oh. nothing like what we were trying to do for him but, but the tech was kind of cool we thought that could make a cool little product and there was one that had a mic as well so same kind of thing where you could turn it on and leave it and actually my son used used it for a while with hmm. his band my son my son's in a band with with a guy who was uh finn on on adventure time and they're called make out monday and they've done a record with john fields and toured like in australia and the philippines and stuff so cool i came here to do it and he's doing it instead <laughs> but as all musicians now he works at amazon fresh in north hollywood so if you want to go say hi <laughs> <laughs> that's cool um i wanted to ask you about the finishes at james tyler guitars yeah so oh, yeah. yeah you go go so how did they how did they come about i mean and and i mean i i imagine that it's a proprietary process to get the schmear or some of these different paints but i mean it i know relatively it, how they're done it's <laughs> it, it's you know really what? it's really so, interesting i mean what dave, what dave said earlier about you know a body and a neck and then we all kind of do our little thing to it it's the same thing it's the same paints we all buy from the same paint guys and all that it's just how it developed is everybody's own little signature of it. You know, a lot of, a lot of people, you know, do other versions of it, but if bring up that um, psychedelic vomit guitar, cause that's yeah, actually, sure. uh, if you show me your desktop, I'll show you what it is. It's the, it's just that lone guitar with the, with the uh, multicolors on it. Yep. I got it. So this was, that's the original psychedelic vomit. And what happened is this is when I first moved back. Uh, I was telling you, I was in that, 
uh, we, we Schechter let us stay in their building for a little while. And I was, Jim had, you can see the horn has turquoise and silver. It was a turquoise metallic guitar. And, you know, of course I already knew about coma and I just kind of knew what Mike liked as far as just not new stuff. He likes stuff to be kind of weird and beat up and bizarre. So I was sanding this turquoise guitar and I was halfway done and it was like turquoise and silver and wood. And I turned around to Jim and I said, Hey Jim. And I showed it to him and I said, I think Mike would like this. And he goes, well, he's, he's coming in tomorrow. Just leave it on the corner of your bench right by the door. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, he comes in and he's like, Oh, Oh, what is this? You know, everybody knows Mike knows he talks like quiet and and uh and then Jim and him went into the spray booth and they started coming up with the other colors and they you know kind of layered it on and you sand it and it would make these kind of you know different kinds of patterns and that's pretty that's pretty straightforward. Anybody who knows paint can figure out how to do that part of it. And uh that led to burning water guitar, which had a similar you know, vibe, but he was in a band called Burning Water with, with, um, with, uh, a, uh, oh no, Burning Water was with his brother and Carlos Vega and stuff. So he wanted something that looked more like burning water, but that same kind of paint scheme. So him and Jim figured out what might look like burning water, like the blues and the stuff. And, and then just you, you keep painting and paint starts doing, you know, it's random and it just starts doing different stuff. And I wasn't there for the real, uh, change in it as it went along, but uh, a, a painter named Paul Slagle, who sadly passed, is just a wonderful guy. I, I I met him because one of our bass players, who had a Tyler bass, said, "Hey, I got a friend that needs to use some tools. Could we come by after hours?" And I said, "Sure." And Paul comes in and he's drilling a bass and he's doing all this stuff. And I'm like, "Do you need a job?" And he's like, eh, "Sure," you know. And he was front of house for Tower Power, and you know, so he had like mm-hmm. so he wanted to work part time. He's like, "Yeah, when I'm not on the road." And so we worked together for a bit, and then you know, he worked with Jim, and he was the painter. And Jim would always, they would always, Jim, everything is Jim. Just if if any period, it's Tyler's name on the headstock. We've all had to learn that. M- many of us have in the industry, like you know, Dave Phillips. He was a Tyler player before he came out and then worked for Jim for a while. And now he does his own pedal stuff, pedal board building and all that kind of stuff. But uh, Paul was great. And, but everything it's, you bounce ideas off and it goes into Jim's and he goes, Hey, Charlie, you know what? I like that. Let's try this, you know, or flat out, like, get, get, no. <laughs> you right. Know? So. Yeah. I love yeah. I mean, like the, from what I've seen with the paint, you know, Mark, so I remember, I remember being at a shop once and it's like, they're pouring paint on the guitar, like with a Dixie cup yeah, and then like would like hit it with an air gun and then it would go a different direction uh, and, and, and they pour it and then they sand through it all. And that, it, and it magically comes out like, who knows? Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. When it's guys, not predictable, it no. takes time. I would imagine it takes a long time to get that. It's it's a bit more you know than a like a black, but it's not that much more complicated than doing a really nice sunburst, you know. Mm, okay. Yeah. Because you can be a little bit random, but that you you definitely can't. It's absolutely random in how it turns out, but there's definitely steps that we take that cause that that look that now is you know even the burning water and the psychedelic vomit. Me personally, I love that first. I liked it when it was big patches. You know, mm-hmm. the, the vomit, not, I love like the white schmear 
with the gold is just, you know, amazing looking. And that's probably, I'm going to guess 70, 80% is schmears. Like it's really become a thing, you know, so. Now, do you guys use uh, stainless frets? What are your thoughts on stainless frets on guitars? We, uh, we didn't. And then people started bringing it up this last year. And I started talking to Jim about it. And Jim has his like few guys that he, uh, players that aren't, aren't necessarily super well known, but, but known and he'll consult with them and he, he'll try stuff. So we had a guy who wanted to, he really wanted stainless steel. And so Jim said, okay, yeah, so we got some and Jim will take that opportunity to check it out. And Jim, Jim felt like there was very, very little difference in sound, but obviously he knew that the wear and tear was going to be it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you're shipping a guitar to a guy in Thailand, he's never going to really probably take the time to ship it back to us for a refret. Right. You know? Although I am working on, I want to have like a repair and restoration place because I, I heard you, Dave, talking about you, you answering the customer service. Yeah. Don't go on the forums and ask a question. You're going to get 45 wrong answers. I, I see it every day. And I'm like, hey, guys, I'm in here. <laughs> right. Just ask me. You know, so. Um, but yeah, I want this, this drives me insane. This is this, this literally drives me insane. So the official Friedman Facebook groups, there's a couple and, and, and guys just, just email me first before you, you know, I understand you wanting to get some knowledge about some things, but if you're having a problem with your amp, it's very simple. I'm very yeah. accessible. Just email me <laughs> or your guitar. Like there was a guy today talking about, you know, his Floyd had an issue. Um, I said, instead of complaining, I didn't say this, instead of complaining, I was just like, just email Dave. Dave will take care of you, man. Yeah. You know, yeah. we'll take care of you. Exactly. Yeah. So, we'll I'm, take uh, care of you. Yeah. I, I, I'm taking care of a, a guitar right now that, that came in and it was just butchered. And uh, I don't want to describe it at all. Cause I don't want the part, any parties to, to be, you know, put put in the defense but it was just a certain thing made something just it has to be now replaced and it it's shocking and i'm i'm and, and a good friend of mine really close friend works at gibson in repair and restoration and it's just a few guys there at gibson that just they do nothing but work on your old gibson like even mm -hmm. way where you're it's your hundred and thousand dollar less ball or whatever. Yeah. So I want to have that. We wouldn't be that, but just guys can send it to us and we do the refret. So you have your guitar back the way it was when it left in the, you know, in the first place. So, so, yeah. so anyway, he did the stainless steel frets and he thought there was a little bit of difference in sound, but not enough. It wasn't any more. I love when people obsess about the, it might be a spankier and a, brighter but that you could get that by taking your presence knob on your deluxe and going you know right so it's a feel thing though too so it's not something where we're like oh this is great let's do it on everything because some people like to feel the nickel push back mm -hmm. a bit you know right and, but some people like that slinkiness so we offer it now and even since offering it we probably had maybe one out of 50 you know, requested. And it definitely, yeah. I see it for those guys overseas who are like, I'm going to get that guitar and I'm gigging four nights a week in my top 40 band in the Philippines. And, you know, yeah, you might so as yeah. well. What about you, Dave? You guys do it? Uh, we do it on, uh, the NoHo guitars. <laughs> um, 
I'm I I kind of like nickel. I I don't know. Yeah. I, I I appreciate the idea of the stainless. I, I I think they feel cool. Highly polished nickel though also feels cool. Mm-hmm. It's just a question of how polished you actually get them. Yeah. Um. I I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit more of a traditionalist. Yeah, Jim is too. It's with it's, it, and 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 I'm just kind of like yeah. Yeah. Well, I know some it's guys been are, this many years without it. Do we really? <laughs> yeah, some guys. I mean, I, my cousin had ordered a, a crook guitar mm-hmm. and asked for stainless frets. And the guy was, uh, I forget his first name. You know, crook guitars. I know of it. Yeah, Dang. Jim Crook. I think he's the one who originally made the Paisley guitar for Brad Paisley. The okay. The Telecasters. Yep, yep. mm-hmm. um, and he was like, "Yeah, man, that's like putting whatever his." his saying was about it, but it was just like very negative. Like, no, I don't recommend you doing that at all. He still went with it uh, and he did it, but he was like, no, I don't recommend that at all. So, yeah. And and that's, so Jim, if Jim would have hated it, like full on just went, it's nothing Jim would ever, he, he, I know he would never do it on his guitar. If he full on hated it and it wasn't something that he could stand behind. And I know, I know Dave and guys at this level are all like that. They, They will check something out. And, uh, but he said, if, if it was something he hated, he w- we would refuse, but yeah, he was right. like, you know what? It's not offensive. We have to charge a little more. It does wear on tools. Don't let people say, oh, it's not that. No, it screws with files pretty bad. So we had to get sets of files that are just for that. But mm-hmm. th- what, what you just said in, is, is like, th- there'll be a guy, you know, in the Philippines who wants a Tyler, but he's not going to do it because he doesn't want to get a Tyler and then have somebody refret it with stainless there not because of the price but just because he wants what we do so it was like you know that too to just try and help a customer but if it was something jim hated it would be like sorry you're gonna have to have somebody else do that because i don't stand behind it so yeah yeah all right i think we got one last super chat and we're gonna wrap things up cool uh guido day i think i said that right guido day uh Hey, Rich, were you at Tyler during the Joe X guitars period? If so, any insight of how they came about? Uh, I wasn't there, but I'm friends with Jim, so we've talked a a lot about it. In fact, we're thinking about bringing back. There was one Joe X guitar that had that was uh, a rat rod. It looked like a rat rod. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, like the barn find is, is this crazy green whole other kind of weird paint thing that we do with worn weathered hardware and stuff that came from Jim's love of like, he loves, you know, he's a photographer. So, you know, just we have a calendar at work. That's just all these old patina cars and, you know, that you find in a barn, you know? So uh, with the Joe X, the same thing, rat rod, just then like just Brown and the tire ran over it. We're talking about bringing that back um, Mm -hmm. as a, as a Tyler guitar just because people love that, you know, craziness and then, you know, that kind of thing. But it came about because he was just looking for a way to, to make, uh, you know, in Japan, our guitars go for close to 10 grand. So he was looking for a way to have something that was funny, you know, like our whole built in America by assholes sticker or the Explogo, the Explogo. Uh, I don't, I don't know for sure, but I feel like it was born out of that coma guitar headstock, that fender, when it was a fender headstock, Jim, put on a logo and, and, and uh, 
I forget what happened, but something happened. And it was like, so he just put a whole bunch of them on to be funny. And he was ready to, to it, there was no finish. He, he just had it ready to go. And Mike comes in to get his guitar and he was thinking Mike was going to like go, what? No. <laughs> and Mike, went, I love that. <laughs> so that stayed on the guitar for quite a while. And I think Explode goes kind of that. So, so Joe X was a way to do it quickly. You're not, you don't have to buff, you know, it's like beat up and yeah. fun and yeah, a way to get a slightly more affordable guitar. And, you know, it just, it just kind of faded. I love the barn fine yeah. models too. Those are cool too, man. Painted necks. I want to, somebody found a, it was like an old barn. So it had that red and brown vibe, you know, like an old barn in the Midwest and it was a door and it looked very much like a burning water. But, and I said, Jim, we should do like a reddish barn find, you know? So, That's but again, cool. it's all these things that you want to do, but yeah. Do you have? So. Mike, Michael Nielsen in the house. Ah. Up, guys? Hey, Michael. M9 is why I met Michael. He, he had a broken M9. And we met at my Starbucks that I just went to. And uh, there we go. That guy, man, what a good player, tone guy. Oh, he's he's mm-hmm. great. Love I Michael. can tell his trailers every time I'm sitting in a movie. I'm going, yeah, that's Mike. Hey, did you do this one? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, guys, make sure we're going to wrap things up hitting two hour mark. I know Dave's got to get to work. Yeah. I got to work. And, um, so make sure you check out Sweetwater, please. Um, this is our affiliate link. I want to thank BV, our moderator as always being fantastic. Thank Um, you. And our next show will be, uh, ask Dave show. Um, you want to do it next weekend, Dave, next Saturday, or you want to take a sure. Okay. Think so. You're around next Saturday. Okay. All right. So check us out next Saturday. You see how things work here? We uh we make plans right on the show. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh and 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 uh, and and if you ask me what our next show is, I never know. Right. Exactly. I'm like, hey, Mark, Dave. what's our next show? <laughs> we gotta do dinner soon, Dave. Yeah, man, let's do it. Muzo and Frank, let's do it. Oh, I've never been actually. Let's go. We'll go. Okay. Well, hey. All right. Nice. Hang on while we say goodbye, Rich. Yep. All right. After after we uh, get offline. See you guys. Um, yeah, guys, take care. We'll talk soon. Sweetwater.com. Make sure you check them out. All right.